Okay, if we can get started. When we left last time, we were talking about control of the complement system. We talked about some of the blood-borne inhibitors, and we talked about cell-borne on the surface of eukaryotic cells, protectin and homologous restriction factor, and HRF and protectin are probably the major things that are going to stop complement from destroying our own cells, right? Because remember, that C3 molecule is going to bind to anything, and it could be our cells as well. So this little picture. And then, I just want to get through this quickly. We can just wrap up complement by talking about a, a bunch, a whole bunch of different receptors. So there's complement receptor 1 with a whole bunch of different ligands, and it's on erythrocytes for clearance of immune complexes. Again, we're going to try to clear those immune complexes in terms of opsonic receptors, right, FC-mediated phagocytosis. Now we have complement-mediated phagocytosis. Complement receptor 2 binds C3BI on the B cells. It activates B cells. I'm just going to sort of run through this. Right? Membrane cofactor, more of them, binds C3B, C4B. Decay accelerating factor, C3B, C4B. Right? So we have all these different ways that we're going to be able to control complement proteins. That wasn't so bad. All right. Wow. This is where we should have been, or this is where we should be today, and that wasn't so bad. So before we start talking, right, we're going to wrap up complement, and now for the next couple of times, at least for the next week or so, we're going to start talking about the cells themselves, right? the cells of the immune system. And when we're looking at the cells of the immune system, we're basically looking at the cells of the circulatory system in general. That's how everything is transported through the body, through the circulatory system. So we're going to start by looking at lymphocytes. We've already said a little bit about right, things like B cells. We said that B cells or B lymphocytes are the cells that are producing the antibody molecule, and on the surface of the B cell is that monomeric IgM molecule that acts as the antigen receptor. Right, so let's go into a little bit more detail about lymphocytes themselves, but we, before we do that, let's just talk a little bit about blood itself. So. Normal blood cell counts, if we're looking at cell number, if we're looking at the percentage of the cells themselves in terms of the white blood cells. The white blood cells, you know, 7 times 10 to the third, about 7,000 white blood cells in every ml of blood, right? A millimeter cubed is about an ml. So there's about 7,000 white blood cells. But the white blood cells pale in comparison to red blood cells, right? 5 times 10 to the sixth, so about 5 million red cells in every ml of blood, and then there's about 250,000 or so platelets in every ml of blood. So red blood cells, probably the most important thing, I can't believe I'm saying this, probably the most important cell in the circulatory system, right? Without red blood cells, oxygen and carbon dioxide isn't going anywhere. Right? It's just staying around. Red blood cells just carry hemoglobin around and they're there to transport oxygen and drop off CO2 in the lungs. So they have the most important role of cells that aren't white blood cells in the circulatory, I could say that, that aren't white blood cells in the circulatory system. Platelets, platelets are the major cells of the coagulation system. Platelets start out in the bone marrow as a cell called the megakaryocyte. And right before the megakaryocyte is released into the bloodstream, somehow it fractures 
And when it fractures, all its little pieces right, are the platelets. And platelets carry a whole bunch of coagulation proteins with them, and they carry a whole bunch of, of ligands for coagulation receptors. So when you think about blood clotting and scab formation, it's usually going to be mediated by the platelets themselves. So if we take away the platelets, we take away the red blood cells, then we have the white blood cells. And the white blood cells, they're not really white, they're just clear, they're just not, they're just not red. Right? So the white blood cells themselves make up you know, a, a small percentage of cells in the circulatory system, but of the white blood cells, we have neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, basophils. We'll get through all of these as we're talking about the cells. Neutrophils, about 70% of the blood are going to be neutrophils. 70% of the white blood cells are going to be neutrophils, right? Maybe half of them or so will be lymphocytes, and then in decreasing amounts, monocytes, eosinophils, and basophils. So if we look at, you know, sort of a, a peripheral blood smear, and this one is definitely computer enhanced, right? You probably never see this view of blood if you were a hematologist. This would be the holy grail of hematology. And if you were looking under your slide and you were doing a differential diagnosis and you're looking at the cells of the bloodstream, if you ever saw this one, you'd probably call all your colleagues together and say, oh man, look at this. And then you'd rush out and buy a lottery ticket, right? Because things like, eosinophils, basophils, right? They have that very small percentage, right? Less than 1%, 1 to 3%, and even monocytes, to get them on the same slide like this, somebody knew Photoshop. So, what are we looking at? Clearly, these are the red blood cells, right? The red blood cells are sort of donut-shaped. They're not really actually uh, hollow over here, but they do come to a uh, they're, very, they're very thin out here and around the, the side out here, that's where they're thicker, right? And that helps with the uh, oxygen moving back and forth. So they're very thin here and they're very thick around here. The platelets, right, you look at this and you think, where are the platelets? But you look at this stuff, right, this yuck that's on here, right, those are the platelets. They're just dark blue stain in this right Giemsa stain. So the number one cell in the, of the white blood cells are the polymorphonuclear leukocytes. Right, the neutrophils, they have this very characteristic trilobed nucleus. Right? Next up would be the lymphocytes. They have a large nucleus and a very thin rim of cytoplasm. Monocytes, characterized by this bean-shaped nucleus, right? so it looks like a lima bean. And it is fairly large inside. And then eosinophils and basophils and neutrophils themselves, these three are called granulocytes. You can see they have a lot of grains, right? A lot of grains, so they're granular inside the cytoplasm. And these hold a lot of mediators. And basophils have these large sort of granules inside their cytoplasm. So each of the cells themselves is relatively easy to identify, right? In the bloodstream. When we talk about the immature cells in the bone marrow, that's going to be, an, that's going to be a totally different story. Right? So if we're looking at the cells, right? The white cells are the cells that we're going to concentrate on. And today, we're going to talk basically, well, not basically, we're going to talk all day about the lymphocytes themselves. Right? And we'll, we, we've been talking about the lymphocytes, we've been talking about the antibody molecules, right? The specificity of the immune response is going to be due to those lymphocytes. And when we're talking about specificity, we can say that that's going to be mediated by 
antibody molecules, if we're talking about B lymphocytes, right? Because they have, they have the ability to bind to that very specific epitope, right? That's sort of sitting there in terms of right, three or four or five amino acids. The antibody's going to be able to bind and recognize that specific epitope. Right? So the specificity of the immune response is with the lymphocytes themselves. All right, so what do we know about lymphocytes? Well, we know that lymphocytes are the only cell in the body that are going to specifically recognize and distinguish different antigenic determinants. Right? That's what we talked about in the very first couple of lectures right, when we started the semester. They're going to bind to their relatively specific epitopes. There we know that lymphocytes, they're about 8 to 10 microns in diameter. That's the normal sort of a size of a, of a white blood cell, of any sort of a blood cell. And they have this very large nucleus with a thin rim of cytoplasm. So in this other sort of picture, again, this is probably a little bit better now. We have our red blood cells. We have all of our yuck in terms of the platelets. And here you can see it better, right? They have this large nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio. It's, mo it's mostly all nucleus. So that's the characteristic staining pattern of a lymphocyte. At any one point in time, about 10 to the 11th lymphocytes in the body. What's 10 to the 11th? Hundreds of billions? Hundreds of billions of lymphocytes at any one point in time. And lymphocytes are very radiosensitive. Right? Doesn't mean they don't like loud music. It means that they're killed by large doses of gamma irradiation. Most cells of the immune system are going to be radiosensitive, but lymphocytes themselves are particularly radiosensitive. And right, gamma irradiation, the reason they are radiosensitive and the reason they're killed by gamma irradiation, because basically gamma irradiation will kill any rapidly dividing cell. So when you think about chemotherapy, when you think about radiation therapy, right, patients who are undergoing chemotherapy, all chemotherapeutic agents target rapidly dividing cells. Well, the majority of them. There are some new sort of uh, agents or, or, or drugs that are out there that don't target specifically rapidly dividing cells. But most chemotherapeutic regimes are directed towards rapidly dividing cells. Right? Because tumors are rapidly dividing cells, right? There's no difference between a tumor cell and a normal cell, except a tumor cell doesn't stop dividing. Right? Whatever sort of changes take place in that normal cell to turn it into a tumor cell, one of the things that is characteristics of a tumor cell is immortality. So a normal cell gets a signal, it divides, and it stops. Waits for a signal, gets, uh, gets that signal, divides, and stops. A tumor cell, on the other hand, once it is transformed and it becomes tumorigenic, just divides and divides and divides and divides. Right? So that's why these agents target rapidly dividing cells. And that's another reason, right, when you think about patients who are undergoing chemotherapy or radiation therapy, right, a lot of those patients lose their hair. A lot of those patients right, become nauseous and, and develop diarrhea because 
you have the most rapidly dividing cells in your hair, you have the most rapidly dividing cells of the cells that line your digestive system. So all those cells, they're not targeted, but all those cells are going to be affected by radiation therapy or chemotherapy themselves, right? And that's another reason why the lymphocytes in the white blood cells are being destroyed, because they're rapidly dividing cells inside the bone marrow as well, all right? So, we can look at lymphocytes, and if we do some biological experiments with lymphocytes, right, we can start to subdivide the lymphocytes themselves. Okay. So the first type of lymphocyte, we've talked about it before, are the B lymphocytes, or the B cells. And they're called B cells because they mature in the bone marrow. Yeah, that's kind of a lie. I mean, they're really called B cells because they were, bless you, they were first discovered in an organ in birds, right? That's called the bursa, that's called the bursa of Fabricius. So some big sort of anatomist in 1621, and he was the first one to sort of dissect birds, and he found this organ, and so he called, he named it after himself, of course. So when people were doing experiments with chickens, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, they would remove this bursa, and when they removed the bursa, the chickens couldn't make antibodies anymore. And this was the first sort of experiment, it was the first time that people could start to see different biological activities based on the lymphocytes themselves. And so you're thinking, yeah, who's looking at chickens? Well. When you think about, right, you, we can't be, what would we, we could be specious, would that would be what we were, right? If we think, oh, immunology is all about people, or, well, I guess, all about mice, too. But, right, there's a whole bunch of immunology out there. There's probably billions of dollars spent on veterinary immunology. You think Mr. Purdue is out there not worrying about the immune system of all his chickens? Right? There's lots and lots and lots of money in veterinary immunology, so people do experiments on all sorts of different domesticated animals, and chickens were one of them. Okay? So it was really right from the bursa, but because we have bone marrow, eh, we sort of call them B cells, right? B cells are the only cell capable of producing an antibody molecule or producing antibody molecules, and nowadays, we can start to see B cells can be subdivided into certain populations based on biological activities. So when we look at all these B cells and we start looking at things, we can find what are called B1 B cells. And B1 B cells are usually found in the peritoneal and the pleural cavity, right? Peritoneal is your sort of cavity where your intestines are and your pleural cavity is your cavity, right? You have the diaphragm that separates them both. And the, and the pleural cavity is the, is the area where your lungs are. So these are called B1 B cells. And then we have B2 B cells. And for, for the most part, most things that you read in textbooks and the biological properties that we talk about deal with B2 B cells. Right? So B2 B cells are the majority of the cells inside the body. Right? B1 B cells, yeah, they're a little wacky. Right? They, most of them are going to be able to secrete only IgM. Most of them don't sort of last as long as a, as a B2 B cell. So the B2 B cells are what we talk mostly about in this course. 
and they're found in the spleen and the lymph nodes and the blood. And we'll talk about what a spleen is. We'll talk about what a lymph node is. You already know what the blood, what blood is, right? And we can take these B2 B cells and we can further subdivide them based on biological activities or where they're located. And we have marginal zone B cells and they're found in the marginal zone of the spleen. And the marginal zone is just a particular area, right, that can be stained and identified when you look at the spleen histologically speaking. And we'll talk about the marginal zone when we look at the spleen hopefully later on today. So they're found in the marginal zone and they basically monitor and monitor, uh, <laughs> right, they basically are going to monitor and clear bloodborne antigens. Right? That's basically what your spleen does. Right? It's the lymphoid organ of your blood system. So as your, as your blood is moving through the spleen, you have a lot of different immune cells in the spleen and it's just there to monitor what's inside the bloodstream. So that's what the marginal zone B cells are doing. And then you have follicular B cells. Right? And the follicular B cells are B cells that are recirculating through the blood and through the lymph nodes. And they're the B cells that we talk mostly about, and they're going to require T cells or T lymphocytes for help for antibody formation. Right? So sort of put that someplace too, because we'll talk about this right, like halfway through the semester. So B1 B cells, right, not so interesting for us. B2 B cells, what we'll usually talk about, marginal zone B cells. And and uh, follicular B cells are the ones that we're going to talk about. Right? So when it comes to looking at, at B lymphocytes themselves, what sort of general properties can we sort of see? Well, we can look at major cell surface molecules on the B cell. So we already have been talking about the major one, right? Membrane immunoglobulin, right? Membrane immunoglobulin or monomeric IgM or Right? There's also IgD on the surface. We've said that you know, certain certain, during certain developmental stages, we can see IgD on the surface of the B cell. But it's basically IgM, that monomeric IgM that is the antigen receptor. Right? And you know, about 10 to the fifth, you know, a couple of hundred thousand of those on the cell surface. Right? There's probably about 10 to the fifth membrane molecules in general of each class of molecule on the surface of a normal cell. So it's no real big deal, just another sort of uh, cell surface molecule. All right, CR1, CR2, those complement receptors are on the surface of B cells. We have what are called class 2 MHC molecules, right? major histocompatibility complex molecules. We're going to talk a real lot about MHC molecules after the first test. Right. After the first test, we're going to come back and look at, at, at the immunoglobulin molecules themselves, and then we'll be start talking about MHC molecules. The other thing that's on the surface of a B cell are molecules called B71 and B72, and these are going to be molecules that need to interact with T cells. So when we have this right, sort of description back here, require T cell help for antibody formation, that's what these B7 molecules are going to be involved with. Right? These molecules need to be engaged by T cells so that we can get a productive antibody uh, response from a B cell. 
And again, we'll talk about all these molecules. We'll talk about all these mechanisms when we keep talking later on. So the question is, right? here is my lymphocyte. So I'm looking at this blood smear. I'm looking at this cell that I have now, right? We're going to call this a lymphocyte, right? Cells that live in the lymph system. We'll talk about the lymph system, right? Cells of the lymph. So we'll talk about what lymph is in a couple of minutes. So how do I know that that's a B cell? Right? I said that we're going to be able to subdivide these lymphocytes into certain categories, right? subclasses, just like we're able to subclass right, IgG molecules or, or Ig heavy chains, gamma heavy chains into gamma 1, gamma 2, 3, and 4. When I look at this one, how do I know that's a B cell? A lot of biological investigation went into right, trying to come up with ways to purify B cells from all the other cells that look like this. Right? I've already said that there are things called T lymphocytes or T cells. So how do I know that's not a T cell? How do I know that's a B cell? Okay. Histologically speaking, it doesn't help me. Histologically speaking, I know that that's not a, that that's not a neutrophil. I know that it's not a red blood cell. Right? So I can get a little bit of information by using different stains and using my microscope to be able to tell the difference between a platelet and a lymphocyte or a red blood cell and a lymphocyte. But how do I know that that's a, either a B cell or a T cell? To be able to do that, we need to be able to look for biological activities. So one of the things we're going to be able to find is if we have antibodies right, to membrane immunoglobulin and I can get these antibodies to bind to something on the surface of a cell. Right. If I have this antibody binding to right, this antibody molecule on the cell surface, by definition, this is a B cell. Okay. So I can use these if right, I can bind class II MHC molecules. I can, buy, I can try to identify B71, B72 on the surface. If I bind, if I find B71 or B72 on the surface, I know it's a B cell. Right? So we have those type of assays based on the cell surface constituents on that membrane of the B cell. But the other thing I can do is I can do a bunch of purification schemes. And if we look at B lymphocyte and the purification of B lymphocytes, there are two major ways that we're going to be able to purify B cells themselves. But right, these purification steps can be used for any cell type. So if I dissect out some lung tissue and I want to be able to separate lung tissue from any other sort of white blood cell or red blood cell that might be in the lung at that point in time, if I want to dissect out some kidney tissue and I, and I want to be able to purify the, you know, the hepatocytes from any contaminating red cells or contaminating white blood cells, I can use this type of selection mechanism as well. It doesn't just have to be for B cells. So we can do what's called positive selection. So with positive selection, I'm going to take my antibody to my membrane immunoglobulin molecule. Right? So I have these antibodies. All right, so I'm going to take a step back again. So let's say right, this is my kidney cell. And let's say I'm able to identify 
right? Some sort of receptor that's only on the surface of a kidney cell, and I make an antibody to that, I can use a positive selection method to purify kidney cells from a heterogeneous mixture of cells. If I find something that's on the surface of a heart cell, I can use that antibody in a positive selection technique to be able to isolate heart cells from red blood cells or other cells of the circulatory system. So what are we going to do with this positive selection? So for B cells, I'm going to take the antibody to membrane immunoglobulin, because that's only on the surface of B cells, and I'm going to bind them to a plate, just like we did for the ELISA assay. Here's my antibody to membrane immunoglobulin. So those are my antibodies to membrane immunoglobulin. I'm now going to be able to take cells from the bloodstream right, and add them into this well. So I'm going to have those cells. I'm going to have a bunch of these cells. I'm going to have a bunch of these cells in there. I'm going to have a bunch of these cells in there. Right? So these are B cells. These are T cells. These are red blood cells. These are platelets. You get the idea. I'm going to pour all my cells in there. I'm going to let the cells adhere for a while, and because I'm using membrane immunoglobulin, my B cells, right, this antibody is going to be able to recognize that membrane immunoglobulin on the cell surface. I'm now going to wash my plate, right, to get rid of all unbound things, right, and when I save that supernatant into what sort of a tube, right, then I have all these cells in there, all those cells I was just looking at. Right? And what's left over are going to be the B cells. Right? It's positive selection. I'm looking for these cells themselves. Okay. I pour off all the other ones and I'm ready to go. Right? So only the B cells are going to be left. This technique is also called panning. Right? You ever watch old prospector movies or Right, Discovery Channel, when people go to Alaska and they want to look for gold, right? What do they do? It was on The Mentalist one time last. Uh, well, right, you take a big, you take like a pie pan, you put it into the side, and you get a whole bunch of sand and stuff, and then you just sort of, right, start panning away. You're just sort of moving the the water around or the liquid around, and all the sand disappears, and then all of a sudden, boom, you see a big giant gold nugget, right, right there in the bottom, and you say, Eureka! I've discovered gold. Right, so that's basically what we're doing. So we're, we're, we're taking this dish, we're adding our cells, we're letting them sit, right? Only the things that are going to be able to bind in there, we wash away everything else. So this is all the sand and all the non-gold stuff. End of the day, there are B cells. Right? So we have panned away. Right? The problem with this is we've talked about cross-linking and activation, right? This might cross-link the B cell, it might activate the B cell. So we, might, we won't get activated we won't get non-activated B cells, oh, we, we might not get non-activated B cells if we use this technique, right? The B cells might become activated. I'm just going to add a salt solution to this, right? I'm going to dissociate this, and now when I pour it off, right, now I have my tube full of B cells. And they may be activated B cells because they were engaged by an antibody molecule. 
The other thing I could do, if I don't want to activate the B cells, is I can use a technique that's called negative selection. And if I do negative selection, right, so now I have a bunch of different antibody molecules, right? I have a whole different type of antibody molecules. And now I'm going to try to bind this cell, and I'm going to try to bind, well, I'm going to try to bind this cell, and I'm going to be able to bind this cell. But now, right, my B cells aren't binding to anything. So now, when I pour off the supernate, now I have a tube full of B cells. And if I come in here and I add my salt solution again, right, and then I come in after I pour off my B cells and after I wash, so now I'll have right, all the other cells over here. So that's a negative selection, right? I'm removing all the other cells. It's a little less specific because Right? With so many cells in there, yeah, maybe I'll get a couple of these cells in there, maybe I'll get a few of those cells. But if I sort of do this a couple of times, right, I take it, I add it again, I wash everything off, I get rid of everything else, I add them back again, probably by the time I do that a couple of times, I'll have a homogeneous population of B cells. Whoa, those don't look the same. I'll have a homogeneous solution of B cells in there. Okay. But the B cells aren't going to be activated because they didn't bind to any. They weren't in contact with any antibody molecule. They weren't cross-linked at all. Okay. So we could get B cells that way. So this was one of the major ways that people were starting to identify the difference between what a B lymphocyte is and what it is doing and what a T lymphocyte is or what it is doing. The other thing that people used was they used a whole bunch of different pharmacological agents to be able to stimulate the B cells. So we're going to look for something. When we add it to B cells, the B cells are going to respond. Right? If we add the same agent to T cells, T cells won't respond. So now we have a biological assay right, to separate B cells from T cells, perhaps. So what we're going to use is we're going to use lipopolysaccharide, LPS. And LPS is a cell surface protein on most gram-negative bacteria. Right? So when you do a gram stain, right, everybody took uh, microbiology, right, you do a gram stain, a gram positive is going to be able to stain dark purple, and gram negative aren't going to stain as dark, right, so you get a gram positive, you get a gram negative bacteria. On the surface of gram negative bacteria, their cell surface is different than gram positive bacteria. Gram positive bacteria is made mostly of peptidoglycan, right, we said that when we talked about uh, lysosome. We said that lysozyme was capable of breaking peptidoglycan, so that's why it works as an antibacterial agent, so that's how uh, lysosome works. So if we look at the surface of a gram-negative bacteria, yeah, there's a little bit of peptidoglycan, but the major cell surface component of, uh, of a gram-negative is this LPS molecule, lipopolysaccharide. So it's got a little bit of lipid, a little bit of lipid, and a bunch of uh, saccharide moieties on it. So a bunch of sugar molecules with some uh, fatty molecules on it. Okay. This is a major stimulator of B cells, this LPS. It's also a major stimulator of the immune system itself. Macrophages are capable of responding to hardly any LPS at all. Right. 
we don't have anything on our body that even comes close to looking like LPS. So if there's LPS in the body, we have a problem. If there's LPS out in the tissue spaces, right, we are in big trouble. It means because there's bacteria out there, and these pieces of bacteria, right, as the bacteria being destroyed, as the bacteria being lysed, right, this LPS is sort of, right, diffusing away. So we're going to use this LPS sort of as a battle cry. So it doesn't take much LPS at all to stimulate macrophages or B cells. But it's a very good indicator that right, there's something wrong, because LPS is only on the surface of gram-negative bacteria. So it's, a, it's an, an alarm substance that our immune system, over the course of right, half a billion years, has keyed in on. And we use it to alert the immune system that something is wrong. So we're going to be able to stimulate B cells and macrophages, all sorts of things with LPS. And LPS works because it's what's called a polyclonal B cell activator. Polyclonal, numerous B cells. So think about, right, I'm going to put up this diagram. This diagram, we're going to refer back to this diagram time and time and time again. Right, so here's a B cell. Right, we have a whole bunch of B cells. Right? This is polyclonal, lots and lots of different B cells. And on the surface of this B cell right, is a different immunoglobulin molecule. Ooh, how can I make it different? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you got to come up with another one. Uh, oh, okay. Right? A different immunoglobulin molecule, a different antigen receptor with different specificity. So what do, what, do, what do we know about this so far? We know right, that if this B cell recognizes, whoops, that's the same thing. If this B cell recognizes right, an epitope on the surface of a bacteria, that B cell is going to respond. Right? This B cell, this antigen specificity can't recognize that epitope. This one doesn't, this one, they, none, of, none of the other ones do. So that B cell responds. LPS, on the other hand, is a polyclonal B cell activator. It can activate every single B cell. Doesn't go through the specificity of the immunoglobulin molecule on the surface recognizing the epitope because every one of these cells, every B cell, has an LPS receptor on the cell surface. That's how important LPS is as a signaling molecule. There are receptors on the surface of B cells for LPS. So it really doesn't matter, right? If LPS is out there in the tissue spaces, we're just going to activate right, a whole bunch of different B cells. We really don't care about the specificity of the antibody molecule because we're assuming that one of these is going to be able to recognize that bacteria. And better to shove a whole bunch of, of B cells out there to be able to recognize something, then not do anything about it. Right? Then to wait for this interaction to take place. Right? If this LPS wasn't there, these B cells would be out there, they'd be waiting to come into contact with the bacteria. Right? But if they have LPS receptors on the surface, we're going to activate them and they'll start secreting antibody molecules. And you know what? 
If this antibody molecule doesn't work, who cares? We're going to clear that. It's going to become an immune complex pretty soon. We're going to clear that antibody molecule. If this one works, so much the better. If this one, uh, where's my square? Oh, I have to use this. <laughs> if this one works, so much the better, right? Even though this B cell never saw that bacteria, if this antibody molecule is capable of recognizing it, then this B cell is going to start secreting it, and that antibody is going to be able to bind right there. So that's the rationale behind these polyclonal B-cell activators. We need to start mobilizing our cellular troops. We've been talking a lot about mobilizing our molecular troops, right? getting those antibody molecules out there, getting those complement molecules out there. Now we're talking about activating the cellular arm of the immune system. So LPS as a polyclonal B-cell activator is absolutely going to start to do that. That's what it's there for, to be able to push everybody out and start making antibody molecules. Okay, so at the same time, we're looking at these lymphocytes and identifying them as B lymphocytes, right? We take our preparation of lymphocytes and we can say, hey, only about half of those cells are responding to LPS. The other cells aren't responding to LPS. Or, hey, only about half these cells have the immunoglobulin molecule on the cell surface. The other half don't. Those are the T lymphocytes. Okay. They're called T lymphocytes because they mature in the thymus. A thymus is a lymphoid organ. Most cells of the immune system undergo terminal differentiation inside the bone marrow. And at a certain point when they're mature and they're ready to get released from the bone marrow, they leave the bone marrow. And they go out into the bloodstream and they fulfill their destiny as fully differentiated cells. T cells, on the other hand, aren't fully differentiated by the time they leave the bone marrow. The bone marrow is the birth of all blood cells, red cells, platelets, white blood cells. So T cells are going to leave the bone marrow and they're not going out into the periphery, they're going to have to go to the thymus first. Thymus is a lymphoid organ. Eh, not so, right, we don't know a lot, right? Maybe you never heard of the thymus before. It's because we don't have a thymus anymore. By we, I mean all us old guys and girls, all right? When you were five and when you were six and when you were in utero and when you were just born, you had this really big thymus. Right? It sort of sits up here in your pleural cavity. It's almost the size, eh, not the size of your lungs, but it's bigger than your heart. Right? And it's where T cells have to go to learn how to be T cells. And we'll, we'll, we'll look at that in the, in, the, in the second third of the course. But over the course of time, by the time you're 12, 13, 14, right, your thymus starts to atrophy by the time you're, what am I looking at out here? 21, 24, 26. It's about as small as mine. Right? So, right, the thymus, a major lymphoid organ for T cells. T cells also have an antigen receptor that's going to be structurally related to the antibody molecule on their cell surface. We're going to talk about the T-cell receptor. I've, been over, I've already been saying a couple of things about this T-cell receptor. 
but this T cell receptor is an antigen receptor that looks very much like the antibody molecule. Right? When we talk about right, B cells and immunoglobulin molecules, we'll start talking about T cells and the T cell receptor. We can divide T cells into functionally distinct populations as well, just like we could, just like we could start to sort of uh, subdivide B cells. We're able to subdivide T cells. So the first sort of functionally distinct T cell subpopulations that were found were called helper T cells and suppressor or cytotoxic T cells. Okay. Helper T cells are also known as CD4 positive T cells. Suppressor or cytotoxic cells are also known as CD8 positive T cells. And the usual ratio in the bloodstream is about you know, two helper for every one cytotoxic cell. You might know, right, about CD4 cells, CD8 cells, when you talk about AIDS, right, the AIDS virus specifically destroys CD4 positive T cells, right, that's what makes the AIDS virus such a, such a scourge and makes it so powerful. And we'll talk about, right, the ability of the AIDS virus to destroy T cells in the, in the last third of the course, right, after the well, after the second third of the course, right? So, what's up with these CD numbers, right? CD means cluster designation or cluster of differentiation, okay? So back in the day, and back in the day, the day is the late 1960s, the early 1970s, when people are using, right, cells, we're gonna take cells, and we're gonna inject those cells into rabbits, Right, so on the surface of this cell, we may have right, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different cell surface molecules. Well, this isn't really a clock. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to make it so it's really not a clock. There's no such thing as 13 o'clock. Right? So we have hundreds of molecules on the surface of our cells. So if we take these cells and inject them into a rabbit, that rabbit is going to start to make antibodies against every single one of these cell surface components. And if we're really smart, Right? And if we're really using some cool techniques like monoclonal antibodies, we're going to be able to isolate every single one of those antibodies and we're going to be able to look to see what cell surface proteins those antibodies are binding to. Okay? So, we are very excited because we've just discovered a molecule on the surface of a T cell. Right? So, I'm going to go to a major meeting and I'm going to report about my investigation. Ooh. That was mine, right? As to about my investigation. I found this molecule on the surface of a, of a cell. It's on the surface of a T cell. It's got a molecular weight of 12,000, and it participates in activation of the T cell. So someone's going to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. I have an antibody to a T cell that recognizes a 12,000 molecular weight protein and is involved in T cell activation, and I call mine you know, Tony's really cool antibody molecule. And somebody else jumps up and says, hey, wait a minute. I have an antibody to a 12,000 molecular weight, blah, blah, blah. And I call it Judy's really cool activation molecule on the surface of, you get the idea, right? So, we can't let that happen. We can't have the description of you know, the same molecule with 19 different names. It would be like somebody calling you 14 different names. Yeah, you wouldn't know what to do, right? So we need to have some sort of rationale for our thing. So what are we going to do? 
So I'm going to take my antibody molecules and I'm, uh, my antibody molecules that I use to identify my protein and I'm going to give them to you and I'm going to give them to you. And you're going to give your antibodies to me and then we're going to come back, you know, within a year or so at another meeting and we're going to say, yep, sure enough, Greg's cool antibody is Mary's cool antibody and it's also Jenny's cool antibody molecule. So now we've got to come up with some sort of nomenclature. So we're going to say, oh, Right, these are all the sort of differentiation antigens, so we'll call them CD antigens, and we'll give that one CD number one. But at the same meeting, somebody else was talking about, you know, a, 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 I don't know, make it up, a 20,000 molecular weight molecule that was involved in B cell activation. And sure enough, they all switched antibodies, and it wasn't, you know, Gary's cool B cell and, and you know, and blah, 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 19 different names. We're going to call that one CD2, and we're going to call the next one CD3, the next one CD4. So every two or three years or so, there are major international meetings. And people come up with new antibodies, people come up with, right, these new ligands on the surface of a cell. And right now, I think they're up to like CD 400 and something, something, right? So they've described about 400 different molecules that are on the surface of immune cells. So if we say that a cell is CD4 positive, it means it has that CD molecule on the, that has that CD4 molecule on the cell surface. And by definition, it's a helper T cell. And if we see a cell that looks histologically like that lymphocyte we saw, and it has CD8 on the cell surface, then it is by definition a suppressor or a cytotoxic cell. Right? So CD8 positive means that that molecule, that CD8 molecule, is on the surface of the cell. CD4 is on the surface of the cell. Okay? So those are the subdivisions. And then the other thing you can do is to be able to separate B cells from T cells, right? We need to start purifying our B cells from our T cells. Yes, we're going to use those purification cells. But the other thing we can do is we can look at molecules that are on the surface of every single T cell. And every T cell possesses the CD2 molecule on the cell surface, and it's a receptor for sheep red blood cells, and it's gonna, it will be involved with rosette-positive cells. So, what are we talking about here? Right, sheep red blood cells. Yeah, we take some red blood cells. Right, back in the day, when we're experimenting with all our cells, we're adding all these cells together, we're looking to see what interactions take place with these cells. So, one day in the laboratory, somebody added sheep red blood cells to a mixture of, let's say, mammalian white blood cells. And what they found was, they found that certain cells inside the bloodstream were going to bind to these red blood cells. All right, so there's, I'm going to call it a T cell, there's my T cell, and, right, these red blood, these red blood cells are going to bind to the surface of the T cell. Does that look like a rosette? No, I'm not a good artist. Right? It looks like the, the bud of a rose. So if we're thinking about this, right, and we have this in our tube, so we're going to have B cells that aren't binding to sheep red blood cells. We're going to have T cells that are binding to sheep red blood cells. Right? And when these sheep red blood cells bind to these T cells, the T cells become heavier. So they're going to settle out rather quickly. That means in the supernatant, will have purified B cells. 
Right, so this was another sort of purification technique, right? Used to separate T cells from B cells. So you're thinking, hey, what the heck? Why would we have a receptor for a sheep red blood cell in, on our T cells? No, we actually don't. CD2 actually binds, right, CD58. And CD58 is found on a bunch of different red blood cells from different species. CD58 is, is, happens to be found on the surface of sheep red blood cells. So this is one of those serendipitous discoveries, right? It allowed us to be able to separate B cells from T cells. So these are the T lymphocytes. And then we also have a bunch of cells that are called null cells or null lymphocytes. They histologically look just like that cell that we saw in that photo before, right? The high nuclear to cytoplasmic ratio. It doesn't have any membrane immunoglobulin on the cell surface, and it doesn't bind sheep red blood cells. It doesn't have CD4. Well, actually, it does have CD, but I'm not going to lie to you. Right? Forget I said that. It, right? it, it doesn't have any other characteristics of a B cell or, or a T cell, except histologically it looks and it stains just like any other lymphocyte. Well, kind of. I'll explain that in a second, right? So. It's not a T cell, it's not a B cell. Doesn't express any surface marker for a T cell or a B cell. It is a little bit larger, right? When you start to really start to look at only T cells in your slide, you can see a bunch of T cells that might be a little bit bigger, might have a little right, more granules in the cytoplasm. So they're also called large granular lymphocytes, LGLs. They're also called natural killer cells or NK cells. And these cells are important for nonspecific killing of virus-infected cells and tumor cells. Okay? The immune system is terrified of viruses, absolutely terrified of viruses. Viruses are a very worthy opponent to the immune system. And why are viruses a very worthy opponent to the immune system? It's because they ain't around for a long period of time. Right? You're sitting in that subway car, somebody sneezes, you breathe it in, virus comes in, starts to infect your mucosal cells on the surface. What happens rather quickly? Rather quickly, that virus particle right, infects that cell, enters that cell, and now, you can't see that virus anymore. Right? Viruses are very good at doing what it does. So we need to have a very specific way to be able to eliminate these cells. Right? And that's what NK cells are going to be involved with. And also tumor cells are capable of being recognized by NK cells. All right? We'll finish this on Monday. Have a good weekend. Hope it doesn't rain too much for you.